Why was the crowd there? Why was there such a crowd laying palm branches down, proclaiming Jesus as the king of Israel? Look at verse 18. This is, John tells us, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. What sign was that? The sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. John is giving us insight as to why the crowd was there just outside of Bethany, which is just under two miles from downtown Jerusalem, and lining the streets to worship him. You see, all four gospels tell us about this triumphal entry. But the four gospels, they work in harmony with one another, though they have different details. It's, it, it'd be like me having a car crash right here at the end of church, and you four of you being on four different corners of the intersection seeing the car wreck. You would all have a different perspective about that car wreck. Some of you saw this happen. Some of you saw this happen. Some of you saw me distracted here. Some of you saw the other driver distracted here. Some of you noticed this thing. All the different factors all bear witness to the one accident. And a good police officer will come and gather all the facts of all four witnesses to get the whole story. That's exactly how the four gospels ought to be viewed. They are all telling the story of the same car crash, which is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Each of them has their own perspective. Each of them has their own angle. Each of them has their various viewpoint. For example, take this story that all four gospels talk about, the triumphal entry. Matthew tells us about the entry in Matthew 21, and then he spends five chapters writing about the parables where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees before he tells the story of Mary's anointing Jesus with oil. Mark tells the same story of the entry in Mark 11, and then he writes three chapters dealing with end times and the Pharisees before he mentions Mary's anointing at Bethany. Luke tells about the entry in Luke 19, but he doesn't mention the story of Bethany, uh, Mary here. He mentions it in Luke 7, and all he says about this situation here was that Satan entered Judas and began to plot how he would betray. What about John? John here, who is classically known to be chronological in the way he wrote things, puts this story of Mary's anointing and a subsequent discussion there before the anointing, and it gives us a picture as to why the crowd was gathered as it was. Why were they so fever-pitched? Why were they so polarized? And this is classic Johenian writing. As I mentioned, the gospel writers all have their own viewpoint. Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel was to convince the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the Christ, and he uses 90 different Old Testament quotes and allusions to prove his point. So when Matthew is writing the triumphal entry, he is writing with a Jewish lens on to try to confront the Jewish leaders. What was John's lens? Well, it's very convenient that he tells us. Don't you love it when a writer tells you up front, this is why I wrote my book? Well, he does. John 20, 30, listen to this. Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was Jesus' best friend. John was called the disciple that Jesus loved. John was the one reclining on Jesus' chest at the Lord's Supper. John was the one standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying, 
next to Jesus' mother, and Jesus tells him, behold your mother, take care of her. John's gospel is a relational gospel. He tells these micro stories so that we would see the bigger pericope of what is actually happening. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. We're going to learn from Mary, from Lazarus, and from Judas why the crowd was so polarized. So let's, let's look at all three of these. Let's first start with the undeniable witness of Lazarus. Verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of them, reclining with him at the table. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the count of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The witness of Lazarus is undeniable. Picture this in your head, please. You're sitting at the table with a man who was dead for four days. Imagine the stories. Last Saturday night, I had three of some of the top surgeons in our city sitting at my dinner table, friends of mine, and they got to talking with each other for two hours about the horrific surgeries they had done to save people's lives. And I'm like, wow, my fish is this big, your fish is this big. If you're Lazarus, your fish is this big. Oh yeah, I rose from the dead. I was dead a few days ago, now I'm alive. His witness was unmistakable. They saw him dead. They smelled his death odor. They saw him walk out in the death cloths. And now he's sitting at the table. Do you think you'd show up to that meeting? I want to go see that guy. Well, they were there. If your heart is soft and longing, then this event sets you free with hope. If your heart is hard and defensive, then this event threatens the very source of your righteousness, namely yourself. This would be all the more evident when Jesus would raise himself from the dead. We'll get to that. What we need to see right now, though, is that what Jesus did to Lazarus, he would do to himself. And that's why the people were proclaiming him as a king. They didn't know he was going to rise from the dead, but they saw what he did to Lazarus. Anybody that can do that, we want him to be our king. Lazarus Lazarus represents the greatest witness and foreshadowing to what this king riding into Jerusalem would do. He would ride into Jerusalem to die a death, to overcome death by raising from the dead. So, Lazarus' witness is undeniable. And in that crowd were many who had believed in Jesus because of what they saw him do to Lazarus. Second, the unmeasured delight of Mary. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Once again, we find Mary and Martha serving Jesus. Luke 10 tells us they had a conflict with each other. Mary was, Martha was upset with Mary sitting the feet. I guess they had worked out their inner sister conflict here because now they're serving Jesus together. And Mary is once again at the feet of Jesus. This time, her devotion explodes over into pouring out a costly ointment onto Jesus' body. 
As Judas, who we'll get to in a second, appraises, this anointment, this ointment would have cost 300 denarii. One denarii was a day's wage. 300 denarii was a year's wage. So this either tells us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were wealthy people, or they had a, a family heirloom that was, that was precious. Either way, Mary's love for Jesus, he had just raised her brother from the dead. I love you, I'm I'm drawn to you, you are the Messiah, I believe you are the Christ. And her love explodes over into this anointing and John says that the perfume filled the entire house. Jesus would say in Matthew, what Mary has done will be remembered for all times whenever this gospel is proclaimed. The specific act of the ointment, no. The overflowing of love for a savior. That's what would be remembered. When you fall in love with Jesus and you understand how much you have been forgiven, you can't help but pour out unmeasured, unhindered devotion to him. I just can't help myself. I'm in love. So when the crowd is waving their palm branches, there's this exuberant waving of the king is coming, the king, he's here. And they've got this exuberant devotion. And then Luke tells us the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, tell these people to stop worshiping you like a king. And what does Jesus say? If they stopped, even the rocks would cry out. I am worthy of this sort of elation. And if they stop, the rocks themselves are gonna delight in me. Jesus' strong rebuke to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 was this, you have lost your first love. As I was praying for us this week, wouldn't it be awesome if this Easter we got back to an unhindered, unmeasured, ridiculous devotion to Jesus where we just poured out our rich ointment all over him. I'm praying that. So the crowd would have been filled with those who had an unmeasured delight. Third person, the deceptive hypocrisy of Judas. But Judas Iscariot, verse four, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Church, we need to listen to this. This is a scary scene and gives a lot of insight as to what would transpire later. Luke says that Satan entered Judas. John is writing his gospel in retrospect. The events of the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension have happened. And John is writing. And what he says is, Judas rebuked Mary not because he loved Christ or the poor, but because he wanted to steal the money that that ointment would have put into the money bag. He's a thief. And that thievery, that that darkness of heart led him to betray the Son of God. How did Jesus, Judas get to the point of betraying Jesus? It started long before by stealing money. Yesterday I had a conversation with somebody I love deeply. And he was telling me about, as he was growing up, that someone had taught him about the importance of paying attention to your conscience. That you should, you should listen to your conscience. So, because, you know, you get, you get these kind of pricks and reminders of something little that you shouldn't have done and then you don't listen to it you harden your heart 
your conscience gets seared, and over time, you allow yourself to do more and more dark things. And this, this man was saying that he was growing and learning what it meant to listen to his conscience, to do the right thing. That's exactly what we see here in the opposite form in Judas. He did not take hold of the darkness in his heart. He allowed it to grow, and he became disillusioned as to what kind of savior Jesus actually was. You see, self-righteous platitudes always flow from those that are actually covering up their own dark shame. D.A. Carson says this, Judas pits pragmatic compassion and concern for the poor against extravagant, unqualified devotion. If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs our genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration on either side. You can be self-righteous about the poor and all because you're covering your own darkness. Or you can be so active in doing good that you're not doing it out of devotion for Christ. We need to heed this warning. If you're covering up some form of darkness in your life, abuse, manipulation, anger, fear, regret, shame, chances are you will use self-righteous criticism of others to cover up your own deception. The opposite is true as well. Even doing the right thing socially without a heart of devotion to Christ has a different smell than doing something for others that flows from deep and tender devotion to Christ. This darkness left unchecked, unrepented of, led to the betrayal of eternal significance. You see, the, the, seed, the principle seed, the seed of the principle, the principle of the seed works both ways. If you sow seeds of darkness, you'll reap fruits of darkness. If you sow seeds of light and righteousness, you will reap deeds, fruits of righteousness. Judas represents those people in the crowd that were disillusioned by what kind of savior they thought Jesus would be. See, they had thought Jesus was gonna come and overthrow Rome, get rid of those nasty, those tyrannical uh, occupiers. Jesus indeed did come to liberate people, but not just the Romans, the Jews, the Africans, the Asians, the Americans, all people from all tribes everywhere need to be liberated, not from an oppressive global geopolitical enemy, but from the worst enemy, sin and death. Judas and his betrayers did not understand this. But the way that Jesus would liberate the world and assume the throne of all the universe was not the way they had envisioned. All right, so let's look now, lastly, at the crowd. The universe, I called this the universal cry of the crowd. Verse nine. When the large crowd of Jesus learned, of the Jews, learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. We're all longing for resurrection. We are. Verse 13. So they took branches and palm trees and went up to him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been said about him and done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing 
Look, the world has gone out to him. We're all longing for a king. We're all longing for a resurrection. The question is, where will you go to find it? In just a few short days, this crowd here that is at fever pitch would turn on Jesus and demand his crucifixion. This is so ironic. The very thing that would liberate them from their sin and death, they demanded at the hands of the Jews and Romans. Kill him. Crucify him. He's not what we thought he was. That's exactly what they needed was for him to die for them. In fact, look at the last verse there. The Pharisees, are, they're coming undone. You see, you're not gaining anything. Look, the world has gone after him. For sure, hyperbole and exaggeration, there's only two million people in Jerusalem, so the world had not come after Jesus that day. But had the world gone after Jesus? Oh yeah, they would. The world indeed had come. Think about all of these different people. The witness of Lazarus the devotion of Mary, the betrayal of Judas, the crowd. Think about it as the events unfold. On Friday, we call it Good Friday, Black Friday, whatever you want to call it, was the crucifixion. What would the witnesses to Lazarus' resurrection say when they saw this Jesus on a cross? He saved himself. I mean, he saved Lazarus. Why didn't he save himself? Get off that cross, Jesus. You raised Lazarus from the dead. Get down from that cross. What are you doing up there? We saw you raise Lazarus. Why are you dying? What about Mary's devotion? I I poured out my best for him. I gave my all. I gave everything I had for him, and and he's dead. What about Judas's deceivers? I knew he was a fraud. I knew he wasn't going to liberate us. He's just like every other false prophet, dying a fool's death. Let's put a sign above his head that mocks him and calls him the king of the Jews. But on Sunday, a week from today, and we're going to sing about bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he arose. What do those people say then? The Lazarus, I knew it! I knew what he did to Lazarus would happen to himself. And that means all of us who die in faith are gonna live one day. Because he, he, he asked Martha, he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, yet you shall live. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yeah. And when Jesus rose from the grave, you better believe. The reason the gospel writers tell us that Martha and Mary were the first ones to the grave is because he wanted them to remember what I did to your brother, I'm gonna do, I did, I did to myself, and now death has no mastery over you. Lazarus' witness was proved right. What about Mary's devotion? My act of love was not in vain. My heart wasn't confused. I wasn't deceived. He is alive. I will follow him wherever he leads. That ointment pales in comparison to the life I will live in devotion to my Savior. And in fact, listen, church, for 300 years, these Christians suffered the worst persecution that any group of people has ever known. As their heads were chopped off, they were eaten by lions, their property was stolen, and all along they said with joy, I do this. Why? Because their Savior, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and he got up from the dead. But what about the deceivers? Oh my. Oh no. I was wrong. What I thought was the path of liberation now has been undone. So they were faced with two choices. 
double down on their hard-heartedness or repent. Some of them doubled down and they created cockamamie stories about a stolen body and an almost dead person. They went to great lengths to try to persecute the church for hiding Jesus' body. Some of them repented. I was wrong. The most famous of these is the Apostle Paul, who was the chief of sinners, persecuting, killing Christians, seeing the resurrected Jesus, became the greatest evangelist the world has known. So I titled this sermon, The Triumph of Jesus' Entry. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey to die on a cross. Jesus entered the grave dead in order to conquer death by rising from the grave. And friend, Jesus will enter your heart to forgive your sins and give you a new life. He is alive. So as we celebrate this coming Holy Week, we get to bear witness to his resurrection. We get to pour out unmeasured devotion to him. We get to flee from our hypocrisy and we worship him as our king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and then let's come to the table the Lord has laid out before us. Oh God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on this room. Lift us up. When we feel despondent, when we feel burdened, let this message of the resurrection cause our hearts to overflow with love for you. Lord, I pray for that man or that woman in this room that is still hardening their heart. I pray that the witness of a resurrected Savior would change their life. Pour out your spirit now as we take this communion and as we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.